Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Na'hamaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem. Amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet. May peace be upon him. Continuing, Shahab Ahmad. What is Islam? We're on page 91 with the sentence that begins, The Kafi. The Kafi serves precisely as the ready means of circulation and mobilization of the ideas, values, and norms of high intellectual culture for instruction, contemplation, and criticism in society at large, where, to reiterate, Shahrani's felicitous? Yeah. Felicitous? Like happy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, phrase, when this body of local Islamic knowledge and understanding is acquired and sustained through lifelong exposure to elements of textual materials and the day-to-day interactions of the member of a community, it becomes a part of the individual Muslim practitioner. Okay. So, so one of the points that, that, that we're repeating throughout our exploration of this section is how did Islamic thought and culture get preserved for the layperson? Uh, these were poems that the elite would give patronage to, meaning they'd, they'd give you know, uh, sums of gold to the people who would write these poems. And then these would be spread throughout the land. And that's how people would learn their Islam. That's how people would live their Islam. And, and that's something that's gone on for, for generations. Um, tutelage takes place, but today, you know, uh, any person will go online and listen to a lecture. Whereas before, you know, it was by preservation, dissemination of these poems. So these poems literally became part of religion for them. Because that's how it kept their religion alive. Right. You know. This brings us nicely to a second pertinent socio-historical fact, namely that education in and acquisition of the norms, ideas, and values of the high culture of elites was an important component for upward social mobility. By fact of being elite norms, they were desirable cultural capital which people sought to obtain for themselves. Thus, the main mechanism of social mobility in the Ottoman context, for example, was precisely the acquisition of the norms and values of the Ottoman social class through a shared education. To be an Ottoman, as noted above, was not to share an ethnicity, but rather a formative paedia and its constellation of languages, norms, and values. Okay. So what are we basically saying? That to become part of high culture, you had to have the education of high culture. And, And so... This gets into the language, the way of being, and uh, as opposed to being a peasant, so to speak, but the idea being that you know there is a, a cultural capital to be had by really knowing these poems and such, because they were meaningful for everybody. Yeah. You know, I, 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 for some reason, I still find it fascinating that everybody, regardless of social status, watches movies. Yeah. You know, I, I first discovered this. Uh, and it's an undergrad, and this one, like Near Eastern history professor, uh, was wa- uh, walked into a movie theater, and then it occurred to me, wow, everybody watches movies, which is something that should have been obvious. And so, movies have meaning for everybody. At this time, it was these these long poems. So the, basically, the education is the poems. That's what they're referring to. So for the layperson, the education is the poem. Okay. For the cultural elite, the poem was culture. Because they're being taught in philosophy and other things. Uh, and so for them, the poem was an expression of being cultured. Okay. Yeah. The pro- proliferation down the centuries in the urban centers of the Balkans to Bengal complex of madrasas 
independently endowed and thus self-funding institutions of education, provided social access for a growing sector of the population to the educational means to the social mobility. Mm-hmm. Third, so, so we've already addressed that, yeah. Okay. Third, the vast majority of the population of pre-modern societies of Muslims participated in the normative truth claims and vocabulary of the hier- hierarchical uh, cosmologies of Sufism by meaning of their oath-sworn membership in and fealty to the truth hierarchy of Sufi orders and the participation in the weekly Sufi rituals that enacted these hierarchical uh, cosmologies of differentiated truth. Exemplarily, the Sama or auditory communion with real truth and ziyara or visitation of saint tombs to benefit from the cosmic economy of their baraka or spiritual power. And so the key word here is baraka, right? So you have the Sufi sheikh who is the 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 foundation of the spirituality of the people in that region. And then this leads to other rituals that are getting you closer to God as well as connecting you to the sheikh. And so Samat, like this is part of the process when you see the, the dervishes going around. Mm-hmm. This is part of, uh, like that would be part of the Samat process. And then likewise visiting the tombs of, of these sheikhs. And, and the belief is that you are getting baraka from this, mm-hmm. right? Someone uh, will look at this and say, well, the prophet never did this and such. It doesn't mean that there's no benefit, Right. Um, and, and so sometimes this would be there because people are not yet ready or at an, a level where they can actually make their five daily prayers it's, it's not easy to make your five daily prayers. And if everyone is making it, then it becomes easier, but it might be more feasible for some people because let's say they're laborers all day long, um, to at least do ziyara, to do a visit to, to these tombs. So... These didn't occur during the time of the Prophet, or... I mean, these, I mean, these practices didn't occur at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in the sense that there aren't going to be any saints, because the saints are coming later, right? right. Uh, but... But, like, visiting tombs, or, like, visiting the dead, or, um, like, that's something that was part of it. So, I mean, we do know that the Prophet, peace be upon him, went to what was believed to be his mother's grave in Medina, mm-hmm. and is making dua for her. Okay. Here, it's a slightly different step, that you're not just going to a particular grave, you're going to the grave of somebody big and, and hoping to get some benefit from the, of baraka from them, right? As though the baraka is just uh, that Allah Ta'ala is making baraka emanate through them, right? That's not wrong? That's what's being so, so the people who argue that's wrong will say that the Prophet never did it, yeah. right? Peace be upon him. But this is not ibadah. If you call this ibadah, uh-huh. then it's a problem. Just like maulid, if you call it an ibadah, then it's a problem. Because now you're categorizing it as an act of worship, as opposed to something meritorious through which you may get baraka, right? So you're thinking of getting baraka through just the visitation. That's what's giving you baraka. It's yeah. not being like you're not worshiping or doing anything extra for them. No, I mean there are some among the goofy Sufis that do something that looks like worship of them, um, and some of that I have not yet made sense of. But um, here we're talking about people who are. Seeking to get closer to Allah by virtue of the the, the baraka of this person. Because um, I know, like for a ziyarat, uh, yeah. like there's 
ziyarats of like saints or whatever. Yeah. Um, but sometimes people here say that that's wrong. Yeah. Um, because they go and they do specific, not necessarily specific rituals, but like you go and you visit them or you make a du'a or you like yeah. put something on their tomb and then they say that it's wrong. <laughs> there are things that a person might add that are wrong. Like you're not supposed to like um, do salah at, at a at a grave. Right. Right. Um, but there's nothing wrong with doing du'a. Okay. Right. Um, and when people are leaving something, uh, it looks like a donation or something, uh, but it could be in their heart, it could be an expression of purifying their heart by giving up something of their dunya, mm -hmm. right? There's subtle differences between what's wrong here and what's right here. Right. Um, but the key point is that we're speaking about an environment where people may not have the facility or the capability to do, you know, the normal acts of worship. And this also often uh, becomes... Uh, perhaps intentionally as a way of dawah. If you go to the dargahs in in India, they all get populated by Hindus. Yeah. Right. The idea of the cosmic economy of Baraka proceeds directly from the Neoplatonic logic of emanation that underpins the Avician. Avicenin. Avicenin cosmos. Indeed, an ordinary Muslim ziyara to obtain the barakah that emanates from the tomb of a Sufi in a village or mountain pass in Morocco, India, or Indonesia is precisely a de facto acknowledgement of an active participation in a cosmos organized and structured and experienced in Neoplatonic, Avicinian, uh, and Akbarian terms. Okay, so, so this is where it starts getting interesting. The idea of it <laughs> is coming from Greek philosophers, mm. right? And so that would raise an even bigger question mark. And so a way then it gets defended is that, okay, they're not going to endorse it if it was just purely wrong, right? They are going to look at what, um, um, you know, does this fit within our paradigm or not? Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's stop right here. Nice short discussion. Uh, so that was page what, page 92? Yeah, end of it. So we start at 93. Okay, so we finished page 92, start page 93, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nasafiru kanatubi lake wa akhirat da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.